Hello, and welcome to Performance Anxiety. We analyze the film, television, theater, and comedy performances that everybody is talking about. I'm Alex Dale, and with me is my resident film expert. Dr. Maren Tom. How are you doing? Oh, very well. Now that we've moved, we've got everything out of boxes and found everything. Yes. All Alex, the podcast stuff. <laughs> our temporary hiatus was because we were moving flat. Yes. Yes, even successful podcasters have to move house occasionally. <laughs> That's enough of our <laughs> ch- chit-chat. Context set it, yeah. yes. On this episode, we want to look at The Creator, which is the new film from Gareth Edwards, who has done a few things, but is most famously responsible for Rogue One, which was the the thinking Star Wars fans' <laughs> favourite Star Wars film. It, it made it re-serious again. It made the franchise, Star yes. Wars franchise re-serious again. I think it took the whole uh, fan base and the, the kind of franchise a little bit more serious, where people were f- have f- had fallen out of love with the kind of uh, Star Wars world after the kind of Anakin episodes, the prequels. So in some ways, this is in a similar vein. But what is the creator more specifically? What kind of film is it? It is definitely a sci-fi film set in the near future, about 2070-something. Humanity is, you know, as they're supposed to be, at war with AI. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so far, so good. The story is about the character Joshua, played by John David Washington, Son of Denzel Washington. I was very interested to learn Mm. that because I didn't know that going in. Oh, yes. So Joshua is an ex-soldier who gets re-recruited to fight this AI super weapon. And it turns out, of course, the super weapon is a little child who he then has to protect because of his backstory with the mother of this uh, sort of... AI child. So far, so far, so familiar, I think, mm. in some ways. Yeah. Now, so that's a nice summary. The question is, why are we interested in it? And it's not immediately obvious that this is a kind of important film in some ways, but it is. Screen Rant said that the performance of this film at the box office could determine whether or not Hollywood studios continue to take risks on original stories. So it's important to determine whether it's a bomb or a hit. So there's a lot in there. Let's explore those ideas. <laughs> As you say, there's a lot of, you know, stakes riding on the success of this movie. We had a summer full of successful blockbusters of original movies. We had Oppenheimer, we had Barbie. Listen to those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have a sci-fi movie, which is sort of high, mid-high budget, aimed at a kind of, it's a 12A, so it's a, aimed at a broad audience, family audience. Trying to get lots of people in the door. Yes, so it's aiming to be a big film. And it is an original script. So it's not part of the franchise epidemic that has occurred in Hollywood over the last years. It's not a sequel. It's not a multiverse spin-off. It's an entirely new original story. In the way that Oppenheimer and Barbie are new stories, at least in yes, principle. exactly. Standalone ideas, not derived from an existing intellectual property. <laughs> no. So from that point of view, it's important to see whether this thing stands or falls because it could encourage Hollywood to take more risks, screenwriters, producers and so on. It could encourage them to invest more in original pieces of storytelling, original ideas, that kind of thing, no. if this thing works. Mm, exactly. So now we have to look at how creative is the creator? Wow. Okay. 
neat. <laughs> But I think that's the correct question.、Mm-hmm. How original actually is this thing? Exactly. Because if that's the gauge of the success or failure, then we need to get to grips with it. Yes. Now then, what do you think is the best way for us to approach this question of the originality of this? What's our typical way to <laughs> thinking well, about things? You know, thank you for the hint. Since we are <laughs> performance anxiety, let's look at the performances. Great. So we have John David Washington, as I said, son of Denzel. So already imbued with expectations of a Hollywood persona that already exists. You know, Denzel Washington, his archetype. He's he's a knight. He's a knight in shining armor. First of all, this is interesting because I didn't know、mm-hmm. that he was the son of Denzel, so I didn't necessarily have those associations. <laughs>、um, but secondly, do you think it's the case that those kind of archetype, archetypal values get handed down in this dynastic way? <laughs> from- well, that's always the, the question because you know you can look at other dynasties, you know, like、uh, I don't know, Colin Hanks and Tom Hanks. Okay, Tom Hanks is. Archetype is the, the everyman. Yeah, you know, still a leading man, everyman. That sort of still exists, doesn't it? Today, we still want archetypes that are everyman. So Colin Hanks, also a talented bastard. Yes, you know,、um, his career is unique. It's not like his father, although he already carries. You know, he inherits a little bit of his father's archetype, and then you have got. Archetypes that really do not exist anymore, like like for example, yeah, like Denzel Washington's archetype. The knight does not exist anymore. The knight errant. The yes. knight, yes, you know, Denzel Washington's best role was much to do about nothing. Yes, that that swashbuckling. Yes,、yeah, swashbuckling. It was Le- leather boots, jodhpurs. <laughs> yes, you know, absolute fulfillment of this archetype. Yeah, but also, you know, people like Scott Eastwood. Son of, Son of Clint Eastwood, who probably has the most b- burdensome inheritance, <laughs> being the son of Clint Eastwood, and an archetype all on his own of masculinity and heroism. Well, Clint Eastwood pretty much invented an archetype, the man with no name. Yes, which is rugged frontiersman, <laughs> kind of conservative, small C, you、yeah. know, and that doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist anymore, and. Poor Scott, who looks a lot like his dad. Yeah, he's a pretty boy, <laughs> bastard. But also, he does not have much more than the inherited、uh, meaning of his father. So、mm-hmm. his, the roles that he plays are sort of not as fulfilling, and he is not as in demand. So, bringing this full circle,、yeah. then, how do you think John David Washington fares with this kind of burden of expectation? And also, do you think he has inherited anything from his father, either talent or looks or anything like that? Well, he's a very good-looking man. There's no doubt about that. He's very pretty. He's very, he's very, he's very good on on screen. Yeah. This is why I think people like Christopher Nolan like filming him and、yeah. so on. Because、um, he's more like a prop than an actor in some yes, ways. Yes, he, he look. He's got a good face. Yeah. Right. And it looks good in this good-looking film. So、mm. he is a. He's actually a good element that. Complements this very very good looking film. Oh, it's gorgeous! Yeah, yeah. Yes. So the creator is a film that that is based on good sci-fi images, things、yes. that look cool. Yeah, very seductive. Yeah. yeah, polished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but here again we have a problem that 
his range, let's put it this way, yes. although I don't like using it. Yeah. But he is not his father, you know. Well, this is an interesting thing, isn't mm. it, is that um, being good looking is not the same thing as having screen presence, is not the same thing as being um, somebody you can empathize with. <laughs> These are all quite distinct categories. These are all very distinct categories and obviously useful in their own terms. Yeah. However, here is a character that needs to carry a lot of emotional baggage and mm -hmm. needs to bring you on the journey that he is on. Yeah, he does have a very traumatic backstory. He exactly. loses his family, he loses his wife, he yeah. loses limbs. Yes. So he has a lot of stuff to <laughs> reckon with. <laughs> and so he has to bring the audience onto his journey. And there is something really lacking. And I don't know if it's solely to you know the lack of his talent or the filmmakers you know lack of getting good stuff out of their actors i think it's a combination of all of these things well let's give him the benefit of the doubt yeah. for a second because you know actors can only do work with what they're given so looking at that whole cast nobody has a particularly nice role to work with you know alice and Janney stars as the kick-ass um, boss character, a kind of <laughs> the commander, major, the yeah. commander, the sergeant major. She has touches occasionally of humanity, but even there, she tells the story of how her son was lost, and she kind of sheds a single tear, and it feels very manufactured and you know very cliched, and not not very um, sincere, not very not believable. Sincere. And I think here you've uh, hit the nail on the head: the idea of sincerity and authenticity. So all. The scenes, all the acting basically doesn't feel authentic. It feels like a rehearsal. We're watching a rehearsal where actors show the director the script, you know, what they want to see. Yeah. Or maybe they're doing some character work to find the characters. Yeah. So at the beginning, when he's in bed with his wife, Gemma Chan, mm -hmm. it feels like an improvised scene where they're kind of getting to know one another as performers rather than <laughs> as husband and wife. Also, yeah, and it, it looks as if they're just performing for the director. Yeah. Look, this is what we understand the characters. This is what <laughs> this is what husbands do. and wives <laughs> do in bed. Yeah. 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 So but what is missing is what, you know, Stanislavski calls the, the private moments. Oh, my goodness. You're really bringing in Stanislavski now? Um, yes. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Tell well, me about you know Konstantin Stanislavski, the famous acting guru of, Not of Soviet Russia. Okay. Well, he was the kind of first acting coach who insisted on a kind of authenticity of persona you know a psychological truth to the characters all right he was very influenced by the idea of naturalism in in theater when we're talking about authenticity mm -hmm. the way my primitive mind works is that you know is it the case is it as straightforward as saying if you need to show show anger on on stage or on screen the best way to do that is just by being angry is it that straightforward or is there more to it than that well the Emotional truth of something is that you, you know, you see somebody act because they think, oh, I know my motivation, I have to do it like this. Yes. But the truth about human beings is that we don't know what motivates us most of the time. So you have to approach your character 
through the logic of a human being, not the kind of academic understanding of this character and think, oh, this makes me angry, so I should act angry or something. I mean, we don't know what motivates us. That would be an entirely different Brechtian production or something. (laughs) I don't know. But I know what you're talking about. Yes. And so this is what actors basically learn, that you don't show what motivates you yeah. because you don't know. Nobody, because, yeah, human beings don't know the script no, and don't know don't, the end of the story. And you don't know your subconscious. Right. Yeah, you don't know why you act out sometimes or why you do certain things. And so um, Stanislavski has invented this idea of the private moment where actors practice being by themselves for others. And then, of course, in the United States, the acting teacher guru, Lee Strasberg, mm-hmm. our inventor of the method. <laughs> the, everyone bullshits about the method constantly. Yeah. But So Strasberg then makes all his acting pupils um, do this exercise of public solitude. Oh, my word. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that gives actors a bad name. Tell me about public solitude. It is basically the same idea that you can be by yourself even in public. So for an audience, you don't play for an audience. You are still an authentic self and you act out of your own sort of motivation, which you obviously don't understand all the time. And you can feel the truth of that by... It's a very common occurrence, at least to me. You're walking down the street, you're in your own head. Suddenly you're aware that a group of teenagers is watching you and (laughs) your whole body tenses up and you go, how am I supposed to walk now? Just knowing that you're being observed transforms what you do. Exactly. And often it's what, you you know, what we understand as bad acting when you perform something for other people. So in that context, yes, I'm going to act cool now. How do you act cool? For instance, that's a crass example. Yeah, but the idea of being watched and how you change and behave differently. And that's what actors actively unlearn for years and years. They unlearn this Mm -hmm. response to being watched. So this is a very deep dive, I think, but very necessary because Mm -hmm. I think it actually gets to the core of what we think is the problem of this film, which is to do with human beings and what it means to be human. So the actors struggle to portray convincing human beings... (laughs) Yes, Because they're given poor circumstances to work in or whatever. And it looks like the director is not interested in this human truth. So the way he's not interested in this human truth of the moment that the actors are in or the characters are in, the same way what feels untrue is the way human beings are understood in relationship to the robots, the non-humans. So the film makes this very big mistake of understanding AI robots not as the thing it should be, a machine. Yeah. So science fiction films are not actually about science. They're about fiction, right? So films about robots are not about robots. They're about human relations, human stories, uh, our fears and desires and needs just expressed through these kind of ciphers of, of... you know, science metaphors. And the same is true for this film. But it needs a logic behind it. So what it wants to talk about, I think, is that human beings should be nice to one another and have empathy with the unknown other. So robots are not portrayed as machines. They are 
in this movie, they are like humans. They're seen as a subspecies of humans. They're even compared to Neanderthals. Here, so they do have religion. They can die. They have sex. They know the concept of freedom. They, they watch pornography. It's like <laughs> yes. a, it's like a bad Futurama joke. Yes. It really is. Yes, in Futurama, it was an obvious joke that Bender the robot had this kind of human vices, yeah. and <laughs> because it's absolutely, you know, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But here, it's played straight, and you already find that is very confused, yeah. right? So he's confused about what is a human being. And what is what makes a human being? What motivates a human being? I think as a as a sidebar, I, there's going to be a lot of essays written about the kind of Orientalism in this film, for yeah. want of a better word. Well. The, the way that a lot of the robots are like Thai or Japanese, they're kind <laughs> of Asian, anonymous Asian. It's it's yeah. very strange the way that that plays out. It's very strange. It's very sort of weird. You know, but I think it's because it's a very thoughtless film. It, as you as you say, it's it's basically the first impression that you have of this movie. It's basically an amalgamation of a lot of films that the filmmaker has watched and taken all the cool bits. So these this film is basically a modern adaptation of The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Well, I think um, without the jokes, yes. right? And so many others. You're just constantly reminded of other movies. Think of a trope, and it's in there. So yes, uh, man is forced to look after a child. Mandalorian, exactly. Golden Child. <laughs> Any Pedro Pascal film. Indiana Jones. Yes, and there's probably millions. Um, yeah. Aliens. Um, yeah. Aliens gets referenced a lot in the mm. technology, the atmosphere, Marines jumping out of vehicles. Rogue One. You know, the whole Star Wars universe is there on screen. That it's the same idiom. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner is referenced constantly. It's <laughs> just in it. Uh, District Nine, the idea of alien others. Mm. Um, think of a thing. The road is, you know, man looks after child, is forced to look after a child. But that's the thing. It yeah. didn't take the interesting ideas of these films. It took the cool bits. Right, everything that was cool about these films. The kind of snazzy appeal. The snazzy appeal, the instant memory collection that people have oh what do you think of Blade Runner oh yeah wasn't it cool when the robot did this yeah the landscapes were amazing that kind of thing the world building everyone's that's the one thing that all the critics like about this film is the world building and I can understand that it's like here's some very interesting looking technology in kind of very beautiful landscapes and that is all right for a bit but there's very diminishing returns on that idea but anyhow, to your point, yes, it's basically all of the cool bits of all of every preceding movie put in a blender, squished together, and then repackaged and represented with some superficial sheen on top, some surface polish. So, and here's the irony of this whole saga. In case, in case people can't see where we're going with this. <laughs> the film that is supposed to be the creative savior of Hollywood yes. is probably as derivative as our fears of AI are at the moment. I mean, that is what AI does. It's what ChatGPT does, mm -hmm. and it's what all of those image creation programs do, is it basically scans everything that's gone before, mm -hmm. distills it, repackages it, and then put, gives it back to you with extra polish. And people are kind of impressed by, by, the, by yeah. the polish, mm -hmm. but it's soulless. There's nothing in it. Yeah. There's nothing new, because exactly. that can only ever come from a human being. Yes. So the fear that people have of AI is that it takes away human creativity, right? Because it is very impressive technology, 
if you use it right. Oh, yeah. But with all the kind of impressiveness and the work it does for you, it doesn't do creativity for you. And here's where the kind of fears that are probably best expressed in the recent actors and writers strike in Hollywood, where they got a bit distracted from their main demands about better pay by these kind of demands that the their employers regulate the impact on AI, on the creativity process of writing and acting, you know, so. So they had to come up with a series of very intricate clauses about the role that AI can play in writing. It can't create a story, but it can... I think edit it or they can edit stories that it anyway yeah. I didn't follow the details but <laughs> the point is that they're very sensitive to the idea that AI could replace their ability yeah, to create so things. The Hollywood actors really had a fear or and the writers that AI can replace their creativity. Of course there's probably a point to be made that you know certain things should not be left to AI. For example that um, you know the, your image as an actor is protected somehow, that somehow it is said in clauses what people can do with your image. That seems to me more that's like... Just, an... That's just a legal question, man. God. What they were really afraid of was that AI is going to take over and replace their creativity. And I find that kind of remarkable since, as we have seen, AI has no creativity. It's not built into it. Creativity is a human thing, right? It, creativity relies on self-awareness. It relies on needs and desires. It relies on the desire to self-reflect. It relies on the desire to create. It needs to have a, a purpose. So, you know, human beings are the only thing with self-awareness and purpose. And that's what gives us our ability to create things. Because exactly. imagine a future and then make it. <laughs> exactly. So the inherent fear of that it takes over creativity is absolutely unfounded. So the fear of AI, of course, is, mm -hmm. is actually more of a misgivings about our own abilities. As of, it's it's self-alienation from ourselves, and we project that out onto the I AI. And I think this is kind of telling that Hollywood people suddenly fear AI, that it takes away their jobs, you know. They have no belief that they understand humanity anymore, that they possess the ability to be better than AI. Well, the irony of this film, I think, <laughs> our original question is how creative is this mm -hmm. film, is that AI would have done maybe a better job <laughs> because the approach to this filmmaking here is exactly the AI formula. Mm -hmm. You take everything that already exists... And you, you smush it together, you blend it. <laughs> a big sausage, yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> Put some sage in there. <laughs> yeah, you take everything, yeah, you blend it, you repackage it, you give it some surface sheen. Mm. That's the AI technique, and that's the technique that's been used to make this film. Yes, because it looks really impressive, and it leaves you feeling nothing. So why should we be afraid of AI? We should be more of afraid of human lack of imagination than yeah. AI lack of imagination. Absolutely. If human beings came up with bland shit like this, you know, I don't think the actors and writers in Hollywood should be afraid of AI, you know. But what we need is a genuine belief, again, by writers and creators in the human imagination, there's a lot of potential. There's going to be a lot of great original stories. But 
the kind of debates around AI and this movie that looks like AI but isn't really just proof in what kind of crisis belief in human creativity is. I think it's worth mentioning as to round this conversation up that this movie is not doing particularly well at the box office, which is not a good sign. There are probably several factors involved. Word of mouth you know, can often save a movie that's not immediately obvious. And I think the word of mouth around this is not going to be very good because it's not a very good film. It's not something that you would recommend to other people. But that's a bad thing for Hollywood because it means they're going to get more and more conservative. They're not going to take risks unless it's massive budgets like Barbie and Oppenheimer, right? Where's, where's film going to go if this thing tanks? Well, I hope the right lesson that people draw from this is that you cannot create a box office hit from an algorithm, from just distilling all the cool things that you like and just putting them on screen. Just because, you know, men looking after children is a you know, particularly um, popular trope, that doesn't mean every film has to have it in it. Yes, it's interesting that mm -hmm. although technically this is original, it's fulfilling the role of a franchise or sequel movie in every other way. So beat by beat, it's just doing what a franchise movie would do. It's taking all the familiar bits and giving them back to you. Yeah. Exactly. All the stuff that you think are cool, yeah. given to you in a kind of very digestible way that you've seen already without any kind of interesting story behind it. Let's end on a good note, though. You know, what is it about the film that was actually quite nice? And that is things like that there is still something in world building that people enjoy and that people really appreciate. So the idea of world building in itself is still very popular and for very good reason, because here is where the creative element lies. You know, the bits, how we can actually imagine the future, even if it's now today reduced to things like, oh, this is what the screens are going to look like in the future. <laughs> right. But still, it's imagining the future. And that is kind of always really appealing. Thank you for listening to Performance Anxiety. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Till next time, bye. Bye.